This is A Disciple's Point of View, One Disciple's Perspective on God's Word. My name is Craig and I'll be your host today as we go through a myriad of topics related to Christianity. Hello and welcome to the final recording of Tumultuous Times. Today we're going to wrap up everything that we've been talking about in this particular series of podcasts. We've talked about everything from how God will institute uh, the final world dictator, basically, how he will take his church out of the way before that final dictator is revealed, the tribulation period, and then what happens at the end of the tribulation period, which is specifically what we're going to talk about today. So we already talked about the Battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Jesus Christ. What happens directly after that? is what we often refer to as the millennial reign of Christ, okay? So this is a little bit of a controversial topic within some sectors of Christianity. Some people hold to an amillennial point of view. This is predominantly the view of the Catholic Church, basically where the church will Christianize the world and then Jesus will come. Basically, the kingdom of God is already happening within the heart's and minds of his believers instead of actually being a literal 1000 year reign of christ i personally hold the view that there will literally be a 1000 year reign of jesus christ and i'm going to spell out why i think that not only because i've made it clear that i take the scriptures literally because we looked at the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' first coming to be taken literally. So why in the world wouldn't we take his second coming literally? And why wouldn't we take a lot of the yet-to-be-fulfilled scriptures in the Old Testament to talk about them, basically David's descendant reigning forever on God's throne? Why wouldn't we take that literally? Why would we rip out uh, the verses from context and sit here and assign some symbolic meaning to it, which I think is a grave disservice to not only God, but to the scriptures, because you could just basically insert anything you really want into the meaning of the scriptures and you stop taking them literally. So we're going to look at a literal point of view with this as we have throughout, as we, as, I'm sorry, as we have with everything in this podcast. So the primary areas of scripture that we want to look at for this is throughout this whole podcast is going to be Revelation 20 and uh, chapter 21 as well. But I will be highlighting other scriptures as well to support the position that uh, both of these chapters talk about. So in verses four and five, it emphasizes authority is given to those who are martyred for their faith during the tribulation. And then we have verse 6, where it talks about these people will reign with Jesus Christ for 1,000 years. And this is the only book in the whole book of Revelation that talks about the millennial reign of Christ. So a lot of people may sit here and say, well, that means God doesn't really take it too seriously. Well, Anybody familiar with the Old Testament and is sitting here either hearing the book of Revelation being read or reading it for themselves, if they're familiar with their Old Testament, they're going to have a whole bunch of stuff just come out and go, okay, this fulfills this, this fulfills this, and this fulfills this. So let's get into that, okay? So the reign 
of the seat of David is widely prophesied in the Old Testament, okay? And this has to start first and foremost with the covenant of land that God gave to Abraham and his descendants forever. And this is often referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. This is referred to in Genesis chapter 15, where God promised to give Abraham's descendants a particular plot of land in the Middle East and God made himself the only binding party within that covenant. So we don't have to worry about Abraham being obedient. We don't have to worry about Jacob being obedient. We don't have to worry about the 12 tribes and then the subsequent people that lived during the time of the ancient Israelites kingdom. And then we don't have to worry about the church being obedient either. God alone is the binding party to this, which also lends itself to a literal fulfillment of the fulfillment of the scriptures, because you really have to spiritualize the heck out of this to be able to take it as anything other than God promised to give the descendants of Israel this particular plot of land forever. Okay? So, God later on in the scriptures talked about one who would come from David, one of his descendants, that would rule forever. This was first alluded to in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where it says one of David's descendants will take the throne forever. And that's specifically in verses 12 through 13. And in verse 10 of that same chapter, the covenant of land is reiterated. We jump forward to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, and it talks about this king being divine. This is where we have, he is the prince of peace, mighty God, wonderful counselor, talking about the titles that would be given to this future king. Isaiah chapter 11 talks extensively about this kingdom, talks about how basically he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will do so in righteousness. There will be peace that we have yet to see, whereby even the forces of nature and the animals in the animal kingdom will be at complete peace, and this king will bring it about. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, it reiterates the divine nature of this ruler over God's kingdom, calling this ruler one who is like a son of man. An interesting side note, that is one of Jesus's favorite titles for himself within the Gospels. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many is probably one of the verses that most readily jumps to mind whenever we're talking about this title of a Son of Man, okay? And within this verse, or these two verses in Daniel chapter 7, this one who is like a Son of Man receives worship. And we have to remember if this is not basically one who is God, okay, we could talk about the Trinity at some other point in time uh, in another podcast because we're touching on the doctrine of the Trinity at this point where God is three persons but is one God. Because in Exodus 20 verse 3 and Deuteronomy 6 verse 13, the ancient Israelites are told to worship God alone. So if this one like a son of man isn't God, then clearly, basically, God is violating his own word. But clearly, also, we fast forward 
to the New Testament in John chapter 1, verse 1, and also verse 14, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. So clearly, the Word talked about in John chapter 1 is clearly Jesus Christ. Correlate this with the verse in Daniel chapter 7, and we see that this ruler will be divine. And then we fast forward to the New Testament and we see both genealogies that are talked about in reference to Jesus's lineage back to David in both Matthew chapter one and I'm sorry, Luke chapter three affirms that Jesus is actually a descendant of David. Obviously, we do believe that God is sired by the father himself as far as God the father. And that Mary was his human mother. Okay, so in Luke chapter 3, the genealogy stated there is largely believed to be Mary's genealogy. She's also a descendant of David, therefore Jesus is. Joseph, although not being the physical father of Jesus, was the custodial father of Jesus. So you could look at Joseph as kind of like a stepfather, if you will, to Jesus Christ. And even his lineage goes back to David. So Obviously, the right to rule was passed on to the son from the father, just within any other human uh, kingdom or kingship on the earth. So therefore, Joseph would have also had to have been of the line of David as well for the throne of David to legally and according to the prophecy transfer to Jesus Christ. Okay. All that being said, it should be noted also that during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, Satan is bound for this time. So that's found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And that's even talked about before the millennium is even mentioned at all. Okay. So we've talked about how God will have a kingdom and that this ruler will be divine. Okay. And that the book of Revelation says it will be a millennial reign. In other words, it's for 1,000 years. But what's going to happen after that, right? So we're given a definitive period of time. So what happens after that? Well, basically, God puts humanity to one last test, and the final rebellion occurs. And it's unfortunate, but Satan is said to be released from his prison that he was kept in that was mentioned in verses 1 through 3. And in verses 7 through 9, he's set free and goes about deceiving again. And this is how we know he is going about to deceive people again. Because in verse 9, it talks about there is a huge rebellion that occurs and these people are like sands on the seashore that they surround the people of God and God's holy city or Jerusalem. OK, there's no indication at all that any of these people were those who were glorified in either the rapture or after they were resurrected, after being killed during the tribulation period, those who were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ, simply because I believe that they are lumped in with what verse 9 talks about as God's people. Okay. There's not much said about this. There is obviously a rebellion that occurs, so much so that 
they surround God's people and the holy city. And it probably should be interesting to note that basically history repeats itself because in Revelation 19, the people gathered for the battle of Armageddon, right? And they were there not to battle with each other. They were there to battle against God. So I kind of likened it to a pop culture reference whereby the Avengers were battling against Thanos, except obviously that allegory quickly breaks down whenever you're talking about the almighty God, the most powerful being in the entire universe. And I would liken even the devil, which is you could look at it as the number two power in the universe, is like an ant to, say, a human being. I mean, even that allegory kind of falls apart to a degree. Regardless of all that, in verse 9, it talks about how fire comes down from heaven, consumes all these people that are there to war against God. Satan is captured, bound, and thrown forever into the lake of fire. Okay, so the devil's fate is as certain as those who don't believe in Jesus Christ. And remember how I've said before that we who, I should say that people who don't believe in Jesus, they get the same punishment as Satan or the devil because we followed in his same rebellion. Because, um, you know, even the garden uh, was said, you know, by eating the fruit, you can be like God. So it sounds good, right? Isaiah chapter 14, it's revealed that Satan himself said, I will be like the most high. So we followed in the same rebellion, therefore we get the same punishment. So what happens then after that? Well, the, something called the great white throne judgment then occurs. And that's found in chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. <clears throat> and this is largely believed to be, and I happen to concur, that this is the judgment where all the non-believers in Jesus Christ are then judged by everything they ever did. Even death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire at this point, meaning it will never, ever, ever happen again. And if anyone's name is not found in what's called the Lamb's Book of Life, they are thrown into the lake of fire, and that's in verse 15. Again, we follow in the same rebellion as Satan, we get the same punishment, and it's forever, folks. This is not something where you burn off your sins, and after, say, 10 million years, whatever, you get to you know, be released and get parole. This is forever. That's why I emphasize so heavily receiving and believing upon Jesus Christ for eternal life, because it's eternal life. You either get eternal life or you get eternal death. You will have eternal something, and you would much rather choose life, believe me. What happens after that, then, is something called, a lot of people call the eternal state. What that means is, is basically the next thing that happens in the book of Revelation is something that happens and goes on forever and ever. So, likewise, the lake of fire is forever and ever. What I'm about to tell you about next lasts forever and ever. And basically, this is the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, the bride of the Lamb that comes down. And I'll go into why it's also called the bride of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 21, which is where all this is found. And in verse 1, God completely wipes the slate clean. And what I mean by that, 
there is a new heaven and a new earth. So everything that is as we see it now is not how it will be during the eternal state. God is going to recreate it all. So it's not going to look like what it looks like right now. God's going to redo everything. It is going to be a complete DIY total redo. Okay. The new Jerusalem is said to descend from heaven in verse two and then comes to rest on the new earth. I'll fast forward to verses 11 through 21. Basically, verses three through 10 talks about how nothing vile or evil will ever enter the city. But in verses 11 through 21, just the sheer magnitude of how big this city is comes into full view. Okay. Now, the city has a wall, and it's huge. It says it's 200 feet thick. So imagine that, 200 feet thick. It's a pretty thick wall. Here's where the staggering size comes into play, okay? So it says it is as long as it is wide. So it's like a cube, in essence, at least on the ground, okay? It's said to be 12,000 stadia long as it is wide. So basically 12,000 stadia in each direction. We don't use stadia as measurements anymore. But what that translates into now is about 1,400 miles in width and length. Think about that for a second. 1,400 miles in all directions. And it says this is as high as it is long. So you're talking 1,400 miles upward. That's a pretty, pretty, pretty tall building. But then we're talking about this is a city. This is how you know that God has to recreate everything. Because I think to get past the atmosphere, it's about 10 to 20 miles up. Okay. And you're talking about going well beyond that. So this clearly is a completely, utterly new creation. Okay. It has 12 gates that are manned by 12 angels, one for each gate. And then each gate has a name for each of the tribes of ancient Israel. So Jacob, who was renamed Israel, had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. So basically each of those tribes gets a name on the gates, each of the gates, okay? And the foundations of the wall has 12 layers. And by the way, Everything that we consider valuable and precious and worth so much money is used to decorate this city, okay? You're talking precious stones are, are given to be foundations for the walls of the city, and there are 12 of them, and they each have a name, and it's a name for each of the 12 apostles. So clearly, God is building this eternal city based on the foundation in essence, of the Old and New Testament, if you want to really put it all together and put it into one big city, that's what God does. And he uses every, I've said this before, he uses every kind of precious stone one could think of to adorn the city. And even gold is used as pavement. So what we drive on, what we walk on, on you know every average city streets, the blacktop, is gold in this city okay so that's how god thinks of these precious stones and metals and 
everything that we deem to be valuable in this world, God just simply uses it to decorate the city and to create the basic foundations of the city. And God is also there in physical form. Now, this is a bit different from what the millennial reign of Jesus Christ was like. So Jesus Christ being God the Son, talking about the Trinity again, right? So God the Son rules for a thousand years. This is where the Trinity, the Father, the Spirit, the Son are corporeally present in this city. And it's often said that really the Father doesn't really have much of a picture of himself in even the Old Testament. I think the one in Daniel chapter 7 was about the closest it came to where it's talking about the Ancient of Days, right? That is the only time really we get any kind of a picture or thought or manifestation of God the Father. A lot of theologians believe, and I kind of agree with that, because anytime we see Jesus Christ that appears anywhere in the biblical narrative, we can likely infer that is probably the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord was very prevalent in the Old Testament that was given divine attributes and even received worship. So clearly this was likely a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ himself. But God the Father is present in the New Jerusalem, and he himself is said to be the light of the city. No sun is no, there, there's no longer any sun. So like I said, God totally recreates everything. Everything is brand new, okay? And it goes on to say that no one will enter this city unless their name is in the Lamb's book of life. Okay? That's key. That is so key. The only ones that enter the millennial reign of Jesus Christ are ones who profess Jesus as Lord. Obviously, there will still be those that harbor sin in their hearts, even though they aren't aware of it, probably for that thousand years, Satan stokes the flames of temptation, and those people then rebel against God. There's a great white throne judgment, and there's an eternal state that you can't enter unless you believe in Jesus Christ. So let's think about that. Whenever we were talking about way back in episode one of Tumultuous Times, that Israel is God's super sign, that this is about to happen. Keep in mind, Israel coming back into the land is significant because no culture, no nation has been wiped off the face of the earth, but its people remain intact, their culture remained intact, their religious um, culture remained intact. And then God then recreates the nation in one day. And then God totally refurbishes the land. Mark Twain was said to have gone through the uh, region of Palestine, as it was known in the 19th century, and said it was a virtual wasteland. It was a swampland. Nobody would want to live there. And yet now it is a vibrant, resilient nation in the Middle East. And that was prophesied to happen. All of this will happen. So I'm going to talk to you about how you can find your name in the Lamb's Book of Life in the very next segment coming up.
At this point in the podcast, I want to reach out to you. And if you have never done so, if you have never entered into a saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that today. All you need to do is believe. Believe that Jesus was who he said he was. He was God in the flesh. Believe in your heart that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. Confess him as Lord. And the Bible says that you will be saved if you do that. If you truly believe in your heart that Jesus is who he said he was and that he did exactly what he said he would do for you, you will be saved. It is simply that easy. A lot of people say prayer, prayer. And that's great to confess and put your mind and your heart and everything through a process, if you will, to be able to embody what's already taken place in your heart. By simply saying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe in my heart that you were raised from the dead. And now I confess you as Lord. Please take control of my life. And I want to follow you for the rest of my days. Jesus name I pray. Amen. That's all you need to do. And your life will change. Your life will change, not necessarily materially, not necessarily in terms of the world, but your life will change as far as your relationship with God. And you can know for certain that you're saved. The apostle John wrote that when he was pinning first John, he says, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you can hope, not that you can wonder, but that you can know. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I want to thank you so much for listening to my podcast today. If you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason, I have the links for the social networks that I am connected on in my bio for this podcast. I'm also available at Gmail at DisciplePOV, that's D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E-P-O-V at gmail.com. If you have anything that you would like to convey to me, such as something you agree with, something you don't, or anything else, or if you did receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, I'd love to hear from you today and to assist you on your new eternal journey.